You're listening to Loving the Snow Life with Emma and Tennille. Tennille, our mum, and Emma, her awesome friend, share deep passion for the snow. They started the podcast together to share all their experiences with you. Between them, they've skied over 95 resorts, both held ski instructor qualifications, lived and worked in resorts, and still spent every hard-earned dollar skiing. They set their lives up around snow travel, and our ski bags are always packed, ready to go. We're certainly not complaining about this, are we? No way. And even better, we get to share all the experiences. Hugh Kingston is an adventurer, writer and environmentalist embarking on an epic 600 to 700 kilometre snowy alpine journey, raising funds for Indigenous education and educational resources. We talked to him about the resorts he visits over his almost two month long trip, logistics and more. Hey Hugh, how are you? Very well, Emma. Very well. And Neil, how are you both? Really well, really well. Very excited to speak to you, actually. You've got the full adventure happening within days. Yeah, within days, indeed. In fact, uh, what are we now? We're on Sunday, the something of July. And on uh, on Tuesday, I head off from Threadbow down to Victoria to uh, make the journey down there, drop a bit of kit off on the way down at a few of the resorts that I'll be calling in at so that I can pick it up uh, and then make my way to Lake Mountain and Borbore to... Uh, Start at Lake Mountain on, on the 29th on Friday. So how does it, t- tell us a little bit about the journey in a nutshell, like, um, yeah, tell us about it. <laughs> uh, look, Alpine Odyssey is a, uh, my plan is to ski the full length of the Australian Alps, about 700 kilometres, a journey that I did actually 25 years ago this season in, in, in the winter of 97, but uh this time I'm doing it with a little bit of a twist, so not just sort of skiing the length of the Alps, but calling in at each of the dozen mainland snow resorts en route, uh, having a, a ski a ski there, being hosted by them, having a warm bed at most of them and a, and a, and a bottle of red and a decent feed. Uh, <laughs> It'll be hard to go back out. <laughs> and, and then, look, I think, I think they think they might be hosting me for one or two nights, but I might be there a week, a week or more at some of them. But yeah, look, I'll, I'll do that along the way. And uh, this time it's a fundraiser for a wonderful organisation, which I'm sure we'll talk about, called Our Yarning. So uh, yeah, about a 50-day, probably maybe a little bit more, who knows, with weather and health and fitness and everything, but about a 50-day journey. 50 days. So you And you're hitting it at quite the most impactful time that we get snow as well in July and August. So how, how are you preparing yourself for the mountains on that? What have you done? Oh, what have I done? Uh, not, Everything. Not, not, a lot of, not a lot in terms of preparation. I mean, one of the things with these sort of trips is, you know, you want to get ski fit, you want to be as fit as you can when you start, but when you're trying to get all the organisation that goes into something like this, plus trying to put your life in order because you're going to be away for a couple of months, you tend not to get out as often as you might want to. So uh, maybe not as fit as I, 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 I'd like to be. I've, I've had, look, the last few weeks I've, I, was in, I was in the UK up, up until uh, the end of end of June, so I missed the uh, you know the big fall at the beginning of June. But yeah. the last three weeks or so since I've been back, I've been out uh, on the resorts, a few trips out in the back country, some skating uh, sessions as well. So I'm getting up there, but I can tell you it'll bloody hurt the first week. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. I want to ask you about your um, food drops. I don't know I, if this is you or not, but my son was up there in um, Mount Kosciuszko in April and he came home and, on a school excursion and came home and said he met someone up there dropping food at different locations. Was that you? 
No, it wasn't. No, uh, it might it might have been a guy called Grant Elliott. So Grant was doing some food drops roundabout then, who was intending to ski, snowshoe, walk the length of the Australian Alpine walking track. And Grant actually set off about three weeks ago, and he 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 pulled out three or four days ago uh, off uh, off the Crosscut saw in Victoria. I think he's still planning on going back, but he was. Uh, yeah, I think he just wanted a bit of a break. So he, he he was putting his food stashes in. He put a lot of kit in, a lot of gear in all the way along. I've actually only had to put in two remote food drops, and that, that they're both in the Victorian Alps. And uh, they were very, very generously done for me by some wonderful people at Victorian National Parks and yeah. the rangers there. Yeah. So they, how, do you know, they, how do you know where they'll be, though? Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm wondering. And how do Look, the birds not attack it? There's a can of beer and there's a, a can of red wine in each one. So I will sense with my, my uh, senses that we're exactly where they are. But no, to be serious, one of them is uh, maybe under snow, but I have a pretty good idea where it is. The other's at a hut. Uh, so hopefully I'll be able to find those if, if I can't, or if somebody's raided them before I get there, then I'm in I'm in deep trouble. Well, Would they do that? Is there is there honesty out there in the backcountry? Oh, or- absolutely, and there are there are yeah. sort of signs on this on these uh, barrels saying you know this is a fundraising journey, very important mm. supplies, and yeah. uh, you know please please don't tamper with. So look, I don't expect any 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 issues. I mean certainly possums and things like that can't read my writing but uh humans hopefully can so uh, we should be okay and, and the rest of the food fuel uh that i'll require at the different stages i i'm i'm, I'm picking up i'm well i'm dropping at the resort some of those resorts so that when i get there they're not remote i can grab the yeah. the supplies for the next leg so there's only those you times. added the um the resorts in this time because it was just a little bit easier to access you know, t- 25 years on, just kind of go in, get a little bit of luxury and then go back out? <laughs> no, look, no, look, the reason I added the resorts was, as, as, as you both know, it's been a, a bloody tough few years for everybody. Uh, but, you know, here in the Alpine country, which has been so generous and kind to me for such a long period of time, it's, you know, we, we had the fires in certain areas, obviously the, 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 the desperately sad destruction of, of Selwyn Resort, Oh, we had we've had COVID the two seasons just gone, which you know really uh, created a hell of a lot of economic pain uh, in in the snow country. So for me, I wanted to not only celebrate the, the the beautiful Alpine country, the wilderness side of it, but also to celebrate the communities, the resorts that are you know that are that are part of the Alps, to celebrate them, and and also to look at the, the you know the issues around that, the issues around climate change. Uh, and, 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 you know, how we treat our alpine country. Uh, and, and I suppose the final aspect of, you know, involving the resorts was that doing this fundraising for this Our Yarning project that I'm doing, which is essentially a, uh, I mean, if, if I can just spend a few minutes talking about that. Absolutely. I, I, uh, I've been a, an ambassador for a wonderful organisation called Save the Children for the last eight or nine years, actually, since I, I spent 12 months circumnavigating the Mediterranean from Gallipoli back to Gallipoli uh, in 2014 and 15, and I raised uh, a bit of $100,000 then for Syrian refugee kids. Uh, I, I've done a lot of other things since then with Save the Children and became aware 
six months or so ago a, a project they have called Our Yarning, and Our Yarning is Indigenous authors and illustrators writing their stories mm. uh, for in book form, digital and print, for primary school age kids. And uh, whilst those books are primarily for Indigenous kids, I mean, I think it behoves all of us, not just children, but adults to understand an awful lot more mm. about the, even if we don't, you know, really understand, you know, the, the complexity, but, you know, at least have some knowledge of the First Nation stories around the country. So I set out with Alpine Odyssey to raise $50,000 for this Our Yarning project and involving the resorts gives me uh, you know, there's some fundraising elements that go with that, the way the resorts are getting involved with the fundraising, uh, and it gives some other additional focal points to it. So uh, so there's a few aspects as to why the resorts are, are included in the... in the Territory, just for yep. 20 days with my family, and we just hired an RV with my girls and my parents and my family's parents and my sister's parents anyway. And what, I, what we did recognise is that we knew how to say hello and everything in Fijian and in Chinese, but we didn't actually even know how to say it in Indigenous, in our Aboriginal language. And I just thought that was such a shame. So I love that that you're doing this project and I think it is so important to get it out to our children but to also people of my age so they understand. Like when you go out onto the land, our country is incredible and, and yeah, it's just it's it's really, really important that they tell their story and that we start listening. Well, <laughs> the other thing I was going to add to that is that I am a language teacher by by trade. That's my background. And right. and so that's why it really piqued my interest hearing about what your designated charity was and the fact that the Australian Indigenous like land has got what like hundreds, if not thousands, of different um, different uh, languages, and it, it's just uh, you're, you're right. Like the, it's the most ancient uh, culture in the world, and it's just um, it's just such a fantastic idea that what you're doing. It's just a like Tanil says. I mean, we just don't know even how to say hello in any of their languages, and it's a crying shame. And it's this is really important. And it yeah, yeah. and look, you know, I think you know we. We are on a better pathway now, and I, I certainly hope we're on a better pathway. I mean, you know, we'll move towards hopefully the Uluru Statement from the Heart uh, now that the government's made a commitment to that. And But this education and taking pride in our First Nations heritage, yeah. uh, you know, is, 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 is super important. And I think one of the lovely side issues of for me of, of, of this particular project linking our yarning with, with Alpine Odyssey, my journey is that, uh, like you say to me, you know, up in the territory, you've got a lot of stories, you've still got a lot of the Indigenous culture. But in Southeast Australia, uh, some of that, or a lot of that has been uh, lost along the way over the last 250 years. And it's it's what's come out of this project, which wasn't necessarily a thing that I had in mind at the beginning was making some connections with some of the traditional owner groups of which there's about nine that I will pass through in, in, in my journey yeah. is, is getting hold of some of their stories and linking them to the Ariani project people so that it's it, these books that come out of our yarning aren't all from Central Australia, the Territory, the Kimberley, and whatever. That they they actually come from across Australia, and they and the, and our yarning save the children is super excited. If out of this they can get a few books that tell some of the stories of what happened in in, in the Alpine country, you know, up until 
a couple hundred years ago and for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah, I, lo- I just love it. It's so, it, I mean, why not do it? You, you're good at skiing, obviously, and you love the mountains. Tell us how you fell in love with the mountains. <laughs> in terms of falling in love with the snowies, I, yeah. I, I you know, I, I uh, came over to Australia as a, as a bum. I'll say pom, pom, but I'm a Welshman by background. So, uh, yeah. uh, you know, after uni in 86, and I was into the outdoors. Then I was into kayaking. I was into climbing and, and hiking and stuff like that. But I'd never skied. So I was about 21, came over here for a year, working holiday visa. And I found myself down uh, working at Charlotte Pass, a uh, little ski resort in, here in New South Wales, and uh, for the season of 86. And I turned up there with a brand new pair of downhill skis and boots and, you know, ready to to hit the slopes there for the season. But within weeks, I, you know, I'd, I'd get to the top of the, the chairlift at Charlotte Pass and I'd look out across the main range and think, no, that's that's not my place out there. Yeah. And I soon soon transitioned from those downhill skis, I think bought an ex-hire ex pair of cross countries and started exploring the, uh, you know, the back country there. And, uh, re- and, and later in that season, did some longer tours uh, away from Charlotte's and up to Jagungle and places like that. And really just... I think falling in love with I mean, it was the place I learned to ski. It was a very special, and it still remains to me as such a special place to ski. I mean, where else in the world can you see a you know a, a couple of crimson rosellas fly in front of a snow gum trunk and a wombat sort of shuffles in front of you? And yeah. you know, it's a very special part of the world. And whilst you know, like yourselves, I've been fortunate to ski you know many parts of the world it's it's just it, it still remains a, a a special place for me so uh, yeah. charlotte pass was the start and uh 86 and uh yeah still you would have been probably it. one of the one and only at the back in 86 you know how many people were backcountry skiing in 1986 in australia was there a lot oh, yeah, I think oh, there was there was a fair number of people. I mean, they, they you know they were derogatory called chook footers and things like yes. that. Yes, uh, nuts and berries, nuts and berries people. That's yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, the resorts hated them because they thought they didn't have any money and they just had a brown paper bag with a sandwich in it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Look, there were there were there were quite a lot of cross country skiers and tourists out there. Nothing like because the equipment was very different. I mean, I, I always remember back in, in that sort of time around that time, you, you could go into a ski shop and they'd sell you a ninety nine dollar package of boots, skis, and poles to go cross country. And these things were designed for like skiing the prepared trails in somewhere like Perisher. But yeah. they were marketed as, you know, you could go out there and you could go and ski up Cozzy and things like that. And people, you couldn't turn these things for love nor money. So <laughs> hundreds of thousands of people got put off cross-country skiing by buying the $99 package. But uh, Leather boots. <laughs> the, the, well, they weren't even leather. They were like thin, you know, like runners. Uh, oh, wow. Oh, that yes. Went out on. Oh, yeah, uh, I that. So, you know, yeah. things that you would sort of, as I say, do do the cross-country trails on so uh but there were a lot of people out there but then this growth in heavier gear plastic tele boots that came in uh and then more recently the last you know 10 years or so this growth in at alpine touring and of course split boarding uh and looking for the steeper you know runs out the back and all the rest of it so quite a quite a change over the last well certainly since uh, since 86 but a few more people out there now yeah. I want to ask you, I've got a couple of logistic questions about your trip. Uh, one is um, about setting up your camp, which we'd love you to briefly go into. But first, the question on everyone's lips, and I'm going to say it is, you're not allowed to uh, defecate out the back, are you? 
I don't know if that was on well, my list. <laughs> well, I, I, I hope you'd be allowed because not defecating for 50 days would create some some issues, I think, Emma. So uh, hopefully, hopefully you're allowed to defecate uh, still. But uh, no, you, you, you are. Uh, I mean, there's, technically you, correct. Technically, no, you, 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 you are allowed to uh, have a shit uh, out the back. Uh, it is good. It is good practice, particularly in the more heavily trafficked areas, to carry uh, your feces out with you in some sort of uh, bag or. Uh, poo tube or, or similar in in the less trafficked areas with a single person it's not an issue uh, really you know you I would disappear uh, yeah. well off the side of any sort of trail or track but it's not an issue but certainly somewhere like the main range of uh here you know here in the new south wales then it's it's good practice to carry out your uh, your, your stuff yeah that's something um a lot of people probably wouldn't know unless you're on a school excursion i know my boys came back and said what you know, from the, yeah. the sort of information day, like, oh, no, you have to carry a tube and, like, be strategic. So, yeah, that's Well, I, you know, I, I've guided uh, tours out of the backcountry here for a long time and uh, I used to, if I, you know, if I'd have a sizable group, I'd, I'd have, you know, teach them how you would shit on a piece of uh, greaseproof, greaseproof paper <laughs> sort of held down from the, the wind by your, your, your feet and then wrap it up as if you're doing, like, a sandwich wrap. And then Sorry, I'll pop it, pop it into, pop it into a little bag, and then pop it into another bag. And at the end of a sort of four or five day tour, if you've got six or seven people out there snow camping and doing their stuff most mornings after the usually morning rush, yeah. uh, you, 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 you then you then got quite a substantial weight of this stuff. And uh, whoever was the worst performing or the most annoying client, I'd I'd, I'd invite them to carry the bag of the group's uh, poo out, uh, sort of sloshing around at the top of their Oh, backpacks. God, it oh just sounds so lovely, exciting. It lovely sounds stuff, amazing. I'd love stuff. to do your tour. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be training hard so I wouldn't be that person, I reckon. Yeah. 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 Oh, so what, what about uh, your, um, your camp? Like, take us briefly through the setting up of a camp because I saw your photos online and it's like, you know, it always looks so romantic, like somebody's, sitting in this brightly coloured tent and the light's on and I get a bit of like, oh, that looks so nice and, you know, but like... Reality. reality. The reality. The reality. Look, uh, it can be miserable, that's for sure, but uh, if you've got, you've got to have the right equipment, you know, number one in that is a, is a bloody good tent yeah. and a fantastic sleeping bag. But, you know, as long as you can stay warm is, is the key thing. And I, I'm not one of these people at camp, you know, some people who are out in the snow they'll 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 dig these walls and they'll dig tables and chairs in the snow sort of snow sculptures and they'll sit around outside the tent and until you know they're freezing cold and then they'll climb in I, I basically when I get to the end of the day particularly on a trip like this I get the tent up I put the I put the billy on maybe melting snow because if there's no you know if there's no water available you've got you've got to melt snow which is a you know, time consuming thing also takes up quite a lot of fuel but melting snow to make water yeah. uh and then i'm you know I'm, I'm i'm pretty soon after that i'm straight in the tent and it might be you know five o'clock six o'clock i'm in the sleeping bag staying warm cook my tea you know write my diary uh whatever I, I don't tend to sit outside and, and get colder and colder in, in, in those sort of places so and I look I love I love camping summer winter whenever 
So uh, you know, I, I like being in the tent. But you do get you do tend to get a reasonably decent, provided you're warm, you get a decent night's kit because you're you're probably asleep by eight o'clock at night, and then you wake up at six or seven in the morning. So uh, yeah, so yeah, yeah. And and, and the other thing is just saying about camping is organisation. You've got to know where everything is around you. Yeah. Uh, you know, just so that you don't you're not sort of waking up thinking, oh, what did I do with that sock? Or mm-hmm. you know, where's where's my match? Where's my lighter? And you know, so on and so forth. Well, if it's blowing ninety k's an hour, you know, and you, the snow's coming in hard. That's. Yeah. Uh, do you sit there every afternoon and prep for the next day, or you've already know your next three days course? Like, how far in advance are you prepping? Because it's so variant when you're out in the mountains. Like the snow conditions change so fast. So, have yeah. you got a definite plan you have to stick to so someone knows where you are? Or no, certainly not a definite plan. You you have to go with the flow. You have to go with the weather and the snow conditions and your own you know your own body. Yeah. Uh, so you know you've got a reasonable idea. I've got an outline schedule for the trip because I'm needing to sort of indicate to the resorts when I'm going to turn up and yeah. uh, and, and and so on and so forth. But uh, yeah, there's of, actually what kind of a map are you using out there to like navigate? I just use topo maps. You know, I'm a real old, old school guy. I'm, I'm not very techie, and I, I don't. I'm not a GPS. Uh, use the you know phone maps and all that sort of stuff. I just I just don't do that. And, and uh, technology scares me generally uh, a fair bit. And I mean, one of the things on this trip, uh, you know, where things have changed from say when I did a similar trip in you know 25 years ago and it was all manual cameras and no phones and so on and on that trip I had a three-week period where I didn't see another human I didn't have a phone I didn't have any contact whatsoever uh you know now you've also got to deal with that and how do I keep my batteries charged so I'm you know I'm trying to do some filming we're looking at doing a film uh there's all sorts of things you know that that you've got to do now as part of the the camp uh, regime as well, and as, as 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 well as just sort of having a pen and a piece of paper, is just trying to charge batteries and things yeah. like that. But yeah, map map wise, very old school map and compass, uh, and uh, you know, hope for the best. You um, before we it's not move quite off, as casual as that. Yeah, <laughs> before we move off the question of how you you're setting up your camping, I've got two questions that come to mind. I've always been curious. I haven't done a night out in the backcountry as yet, but do you? Do you sleep? What's on your feet? Like, do you sleep? You take your ski boots off and keep them outside or inside? And then, what if you go, need to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night? How do you know? Uh, You're really obsessed with this bathroom. We, 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 we could do. <laughs> do you want to just do you want to just do a pod, podcast on tauneting in the snow? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah we could just spend an hour or so on that. Uh, <laughs> on my feet. <laughs> right, right. Well, look, a couple of things there on my feet. Before we get to the the, the, the middle zones, we'll, we'll go to the extremities. Stick on the extremities. On my feet. Look, your socks are normally a wee bit damp when you finish the day from you know sweat or whatever. Even if they haven't been crossing rivers, uh, if they're not too too damp, I'll leave those socks on so that they'll dry in the sleeping bag. I'll, if I take them off, I'll put clean socks on, and I'll I'll let the I'll, I'll put the slightly damp socks in the bottom of the sleeping bag, along with batteries and gas cylinders. So there's a whole heap of stuff that goes in the bottom of the sleeping bag, so that when you actually when you move around, all you just feel are these big lumps and bumps at the at the at the end of your bag. Wow. Take the inner boots out of my shells on the ski boots and bring those 
at least into the tent, if not into the sleeping bag, mm -hmm. uh, so that they're not as cold outside. Yeah. Uh, in terms of having a pee, if the weather's good, uh, you know, I've got little booties, little down booties I can put on and step out of the tent. Yeah. Uh, but something that is a wee bit harder, there are little devices, uh, peewees and things like that for ladies, but it is a little bit easier for, for blokes. I... If the weather's really miserable, I, I actually do have a pee bottle, so I can actually lie in my sleeping bag and just pee into my little pee bottle, and then I just reach outside the tent and pour it. You um, you write all your diaries. One of our listeners actually asked um, when I mentioned that we were interviewing you, do you journal at night, and what do you journal about, or do you do you have like inspo for it? You suddenly come out with this great poem, or like what what takes you at night? Yeah, I, I certainly, I certainly uh, keep a, a, a diary and, and journal, uh, and, and in part that's because I mean, most a lot of my work is as a writer, uh, and I've always found obviously that it's 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 much more powerful. Like if you've had a a really tough experience, or even if you've had a beautiful experience, it, it's more powerful to to get that down, uh, you know, on paper or a recording then and there or that day than six months later when you're writing an article or a book or, or whatever to try and bring it to the fore. So really important to, to write that down. And, and there's to do uh, in between trying to be physically exhausted and, you know, I'm not a young lad anymore. Uh, so uh, I, uh, I, for me, it's pretty important to, uh, to keep some reasonably comprehensive notes. Mm, yeah. Is is your wife concerned about you doing this trip? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, Wendy is my beautiful wife. is is concerned. She's always concerned. Empower me to be able to do these things, and 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 I, I consider myself very fortunate because I sometimes think, you know, for 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 people, many people around who don't who don't have that sort of relationship or love doing things on your own and then coming back or, or having nobody to discuss it with or finish the trip and on the, waiting on the finish line. So I, I really consider myself blessed to have the support and love of, of Wendy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she would keep you, I, I would imagine there's some dark moments out, out in the backcountry by yourself and if you have got that love at home to come home to, well, that makes you want to get home, doesn't it, really? It makes you want to finish your journey. It, 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 it is an absolute... Uh, in, inspiration for me to, to to do those sort of things and to understand mm. what I'm, you know, what's at the finish line. Yeah, yeah. So I just want to ask you about the resorts you're stopping at. I would say if this was a pub quiz, 100% of Australians would get it wrong that there are 12 resorts in Australia. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, 100%. So we, I would say they would, 90% of people would be able to identify Mount Buller, Hotham, Falls Creek. Um, All the big ones. Yeah, Perisher, Threadbow. But can you talk a little bit more about the lesser known ones off the top of your head or tell us about Mount Borbor, Mount Stanley, Stirling, yep. Mount Buffalo? Yep. Well, I sort of I, I, I maybe best to do it in order. Uh, so... There's 14 snow resorts in Australia. Uh, two of them are in Tasmania, um, Mawson and Ben Lomond, which I, I won't get to. 
So on the mainland, the the the, the, the skiers dozen, as I've called them, are. I'll start at Lake Mountain. Now, Lake Mountain is a cross-country ski resort. They groom about 35 kilometers of trail uh, there, so there's no there's no uplift. Uh, and then Mount Borbor is next, which is a small ski resort with four or five lifts uh, at, the, at the southern end of the Alpine chain, So, uh, which has you know, lodges and lifts and things like that. My next stopover, when I leave Mount Borbor, that's when I grab my big heavy pack and it'll take me about two weeks to get to Mount Stirling and, and Mount Buller. Uh, and Stirling is a again a cross-country and ski touring only resort, but it 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 it, it bounds Mount Buller. So once I've got to Stirling, I had a bit of a, a play there, I'll then ski across to Mount Buller, which obviously is one of the big the, the big ski areas. When I then get back onto my route, uh, yep, Mount Hotham, uh, obviously, and then just below Mount Hotham is uh, the lovely little village of Dinner Plain. Dinner Plain has one ski lift and, uh, again, grooms some cross-country trails. Yeah. So I'll, I'll do Dinner Plain across to Falls Creek. And then the outlier of Mount Buffalo, Mount Buffalo that had Australia's first ski lifts uh, a long time ago, and those ski lifts still sit there, but they sit there idle. Uh, so they're not haven't worked for some years now, but again, Buffalo has some trails there, and people go to to ski and you know, to bargain and, and so on. Uh, so I'll, I'll go to Buffalo. I'll just take a car trip from Falls Creek to Buffalo, yeah. and then back to Falls, and then uh, then it's across to uh, New South Wales, and uh, firstly Threadbow, and then across to Charlotte Pass to Perisher. Yeah. And finally, uh, Selwyn Snow Resort, which when I originally was planning this journey, the intention was for Selwyn to reopen this winter uh, after the, being devastated in, in the Black Summer bushfires. Rather horribly, ironically, the early snowfalls of June cruel the ability for Mount Selwyn to finish the, yeah. the construction in time to open for July, which is when they set themselves. So... Sadly, Selwyn won't be open, but I'll still go there and I'll have a lonely skin up a few slopes and ski down. And then, so that's the 12. There is actually a, a football-sized uh, patch of snow in Corin Forest in the ACT yeah. with, a carpet, with a carpet lift, which if there happens to be any snow then, I'll head there for the Baker's Dozen, the 13th, and, uh, <laughs> and, 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 slide, and slide down the football field size bit of snow at, at Corrin Forest. So, yeah, that's that's the that's the skiers' dozen. I'm familiar with the Victorian. I'm very familiar with the New South Wales. Like, it kind of, as a crow flies, you're skiing New South Wales. Is that the same in Victoria as the crows flies? Or do you have to backtrack anywhere to get to any resorts in Victoria? Oh, or? Yeah, good good question, Tanil, because most of them are relatively short diversions, apart from Lake Mountain and, and Mount Buffalo, which are, are well off my route, and I'm... I'll go to Lake Mountain by vehicle at the start, ski there, have a bit of a skate on the trails, then I'll take off, we'll drive to Borbor and, and start with a vengeance. And Buffalo, as I mentioned, is off, off to the side. Yeah. Pro- possibly the most challenging part of Alpine Odyssey uh, is when I'm uh, about 10 or 12 days into the route from Borbor, I end up on a, a thing called the crosscut saw, which is a pretty gnarly bit of terrain, uh, very sharp edged, can be pretty icy and horrible ridge line. Uh, 
And I have to get from the crosscut sort to my west, about 30 kilometres to my west is Mount Sterling and Mount Buller. Yep. And to get to Mount Sterling and Mount Buller, I've got to get off the crosscut saw. And the the first part of that is really quite steep terrain through some sort of cliff, rocky, cliffy type terrain. Uh, so I have to climb down, get down there onto this ridge, probably some lower down, some pretty hefty bush bashing to get across to, to Sterling and then Buller. Probably take me about two, hopefully no more than two days to get there from the crosscut saw and having then been hosted at Sterling and Buller I'll then turn around and go retrace those steps back the 30 kilometers to my route on on the crosscut saw and then continue north for another six five six days or so to 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 get to Mount Hotham so so the reaching Mount Buller is 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 actually uh, uh, a bit of an unknown yeah, gosh. So you'll be doing a lot of sightseeing, I would imagine, or like it just sounds really rugged. Like it, Watson's Crags, am I thinking? Same, same, or worse? Yeah, I think, well, you know, a, a short stretch like that. I mean, the crosscut saw is, yes, like a narrow ridge, and that'll be, if it's reasonable conditions, I'll ski it. Uh, in, in one of those food stashes, I've got some crampons, which uh, oh, yeah. are, you know, spikes you can attach to the, your feet, metal spikes. Uh, if it's really icy, uh, certainly the first bit of the, sec- the the descent off the crosscut saw down in my in the direction of uh, of, of Mount Buller, I'll just down climb uh, potentially with with uh, with those crampons on my boots if it's if it's icy, and I have a a ski pole with an attachment on it that has like an ice axe, a metal ice axe pick. Yeah. So I can sort of use that if depending on conditions, and, and it's certainly something I want to be able to do in good conditions, yeah. good weather, uh, good visibility, and, and so on. So uh, yeah, you know, parts of, of you know, if you imagine sort of climbing down parts of things like Watson's Crag or Blue Lake. Or- so my husband would like to know: um, Are you doing any pub stops, or when you arrive at some of the resorts, are you heading straight to the pub? Do you think? Uh, without a doubt. Without a doubt, uh, and uh, very much looking forward to that. So wherever your husband will be, he can certainly uh, shank me a, a cleansing <laughs> ale or a glass of red. Well, you, we, well, we know, like, because we're back and forth down to the snow a lot. I'm actually down there this week. How do we know where you'll be? Yeah. Where will we find out? Yeah. Uh, so I have a rough itinerary of, of my journey, uh, you know, so in terms of New South Wales, uh, where, where, where you, you'll be, Emma, I'm... I'm uh, I hope to get to Threadbow about the 3rd of uh, September. I'll be around there for a couple of days then. I'll be at Charlotte Pass around about the 6th and around Perisher uh, around the sort of 7th, 8th or 8th, 9th of September. Now, obviously, that's a, a schedule that's very much dependent on weather and, and many, many, many things. I will uh, post on facebook and instagram you know progress as and when i can with battery and signal i may have a tracker i've got a tracker device here but it's all a bit tech for me again so uh, you know i've done that before set up a thing where you can see where i'm progressing to but social media is probably the uh, the best uh, the best thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. are you are you a long range weather forecaster believer no <laughs> you, not, not, yeah. not in the slightest i mean yeah. i really uh the seven-day forecast suits me, and that, that's what I stick with. Yeah, what and really, and, and really, the three-day forecast is is what matters. 
Well, uh, we recently interviewed snow safety expert Tony Lochran and he talked us through what a really effective backpack looks like, what's in the backpack. Is there anything in your backpack that people wouldn't know about? I mean, beyond, you know, all the obvious things. Well, the most important thing in my backpack, uh, because I can't get Wendy in it, uh, is my orange plastic mug. Uh, now, obviously, people would expect me to have a mug to be able to drink the cups of coffee and hot chocolate and soups and things, but uh, my orange plastic mug is, uh, was given to me by an uncle back in 1979 when he gave me my first pile of camping gear secondhand because he was sort of getting a little bit infirm. So I was 16, and in that was this orange plastic mug, which has been with me on every journey and every expedition for close to 45 years now. So after Wendy, my sort of uh, love, my next love is the orange plastic mug. So that goes everywhere with me. So, uh, but apart from apart from the uh, the delights of the rather dirty, battered, and somewhat taped up mug, uh, nothing, nothing. I mean, nothing major. I mean, you know, obviously, when you when you're in the, I'm carrying a lot of stuff. You know, you got to carry food, fuel, tent, stove, sleeping bag, clothing all of that stuff and 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 you know you've just got to try and minimize it within the bounds of safe travel as much as you can so uh you do you do cut corners in certain areas but you don't in others but uh, that's all uh it's how heavy is your backpack stuff. how heavy are you carrying every day uh look it depends on the length of the stage but say say the longest stage i i would hope to be with you know between a food drop or a, or, 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 or a ski a ski area would probably on this trip would be about uh, well say when I set off from Borbor it should take me five or six days to get to a food drop and then about another six or seven days to get to uh, uh, to to to, to, uh, to Bulla. Uh, so setting off with five or six days worth of food probably twenty five kilos wow uh, something like that. Yeah. Each, essentially, each day, if roughly each day of food and fuel is about a kilo. Uh, so when I left in 97, I left Borbore and I only had one food stash in before Hotham. And so I set off with about 12 days of food and fuel. So that's, you know, say 12 kilos before you even get to the yeah. camping gear and your clothing and stuff. So this time I'm, I'm keeping it hopefully a wee bit lighter. How many kilometres are you doing every day as well? Anything between zero and... 20. So there's, there's some days where you just, it's like the weather's that bad, you just won't move? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there'll be days that I, I can't move or I'm not prepared to move, depending on the terrain. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm usually having done a lot of long human-powered journeys over many years. I'm pretty good at, you know, measuring when I need to say you need to stop, you need to rest. I am you know, approaching the the six zero in in years terms, I, I think I'm still about thirty. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can still I can still go pretty well, but you know, I think there's a recognition that uh, uh, you, you've got to know when you've got to take a, take a bit of a break. Yeah. So seven hundred kilometres, it's all up. Yeah. Is that well, give and take a couple here and there. <laughs> Something like that. Something are, like that. Yeah. are you even touching the real vastness of our snowy mountains? Like. Once you're out there, 700 kilometres, it's just endless, isn't it, our mountains? I've, I've, only, I've only ever gone to Kosciuszko in winter from Charlotte Pass. Right. 
Right. So I kind of just, and Kosciuszko trying to get to Kosciuszko in the snow, there's so many false false hills. It felt yeah. like, oh, yeah. we're nearly there. And then you go, oh, my gosh, there's another hill. There's another hill. There's another yeah. hill, you know, yeah. in the snow. And how does that feel when you're out there? Because you think, oh, and how do you get your head around that? You think, oh, okay, I should be there by now, but I've gone over it. There's more snow than yeah. what I thought. Or Yeah. yeah. Look, I, I think... The important thing, look, I'm just, I'm just an old diesel. That's, I mean, I'm, I'm not a great skier or kayaker or, or uh, you know, whatever. Uh, I'm just an old diesel who chugs along. And, and, and I think the important thing on, on these sort of journeys is that is, is not to be. It, it, it's always tough, you know. And you look at those climbs and you go, here we go again. But you have to love the hills and not just skiing down them. Yeah. walking or skiing up them mm-hmm. uh, you have to know that every time you step forward you're making progress uh, and that just stopping and throwing your arms in the air and saying I've had enough is, is not going to get you anywhere there's not to say there aren't dark times when you're, you're, you're soaking you know soaked through you're freezing cold you can't see in front of you you can't see the difference between up and down in in whiteout conditions where you know the fog is is so so thick in front of you and the snow, the ground and the sky looks the same, but you have to know that you yeah. you, you just got to keep going and, uh, and 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 that'll that'll get you through. And, and at the end of the day, provided you can have a reasonably dry tent, a reasonably dry sleeping bag, and a, and a coffee and a bar of chocolate, then then life life is good. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And, you know, you're out there for the Al Yarning project at the end of the day, and if you don't complete it, then you, you, it's hard, isn't it? You kind of you don't want to not know if you, what happens if you don't. <laughs> You've got to finish it for that your project, which is a fundraiser, you know, at yeah, the end of the day. That's right, Tanil. I mean, obviously that's a real driving force and, and, and the yeah. fundraising is as important to me as the success of the trip, and it does put some added pressures on it doesn't put the pressure on to the extent that I'll act dangerously and do things that I don't think I should if yeah. if you know if I need to give it you know it's a bit hard to keep skiing if you've got a broken ankle or something yeah. uh but you know it is a driving force and it is so important to me to uh to to meet that target and beat that target if I can uh yeah. you know we're about a bit over 30 odd thousand now towards the 50 i haven't started yet so that's good yeah uh so uh, you know let's 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 hit the 50 and go beyond i think and you so, definitely will with, now that you're going into the resorts and you tell your story like if you're at you know say the white spider at the eiger at the pub at the end of the day and you're telling your story you're going to get conjure up a lot of cash <laughs> i would hope so anyway for this because yeah. it, it needs it yeah, yeah I think I, how can people donate by the way Sorry. So if, if the easiest way is probably to go to my website, which is Hugh Kingston, which is H-U-W, uh, the proper spelling of Hugh, the Welsh spelling, H-U-W-Hughkingston.com. Uh, go to Alpine Odyssey and you'll see lots of donate buttons there, which will take you straight to the Save the Children fundraising portal. And people can donate just generally, uh, you know, can, uh, any amount of money, is great. Uh, there's also uh, just as part of the fun with the resorts and the mountains, we've we've been selling all of the the resorts. So you could buy Threadbow, buy buy Mount Buller, buy Borbore for our yarning, and a lot of those resorts have already gone. Uh, selling the some of the mountains, Kosciuszko, uh, Mount Bogon, the highest in Victoria, etc. But also, what's been nice too is that people are coming up with and saying, "Well, look, you know, I don't actually want to buy Mount Bogon, but I love Mount." 
uh, you know, Mount Howitt, can I, you know, can I buy that? And we'll just say, well, yeah, you know, just make us an offer. And uh, and so selling, you know, huts that people love or uh, yeah. things, and, and they get issued with a, a title deed for a good deed for their purchase of uh, of what of, of whatever they've done. So that all adds, you know, the, the fun. Oh, so if yeah. any of your listeners have a particular favorite, if they don't want to buy the resort or the resort they want to buy has mm-hmm. been sold or the mountain sold, come up with something that you love. Make an offer, donate uh-huh. that amount, and and then write a little note in your comments on the donation. I want to buy this mountain or that lake or or that mountain hut. That's so cool. I'm going to buy Mount Steelwell. There you go. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> just, you, buy, just, you can buy the you can buy the old chairlift station. I will. I will. <laughs> Done many downhill runs down there back yeah. in the day at Charlotte's when they yeah. did the you know the race week. <laughs> that was one of my favourites. <laughs> That's a, it's such a clever idea because, I mean, obviously you're, you have got a little bit of a marketing background as well, but so clever because people do want to own a little bit, bit of Australia, you know, and to tie it in with our yarning is quite, yeah, great idea. Yeah. Well, I'll actually, so, so tomorrow night I'm uh, giving a, just before, the night before we leave New South Wales to go down to Victoria in a beautiful, I have to say, a lovely electric vehicle that's been loaned to us by Hyundai. Awesome. Uh, Heading off, I'm giving a talk at Threadbow tomorrow night, and actually at that talk, I'll I'll present Stuart Diver with the title deed for Threadbow because Threadbow actually bought Threadbow. They didn't want any nasty corporate raider coming in, so they bought themselves. So I'll give Stuart the uh, the uh, printed uh, framed copy of the title deed to for them already owning Threadbow and buying it again. Yeah, oh, I love that. That's that's really nice. Of course, Rainbow bought themselves. Where's Perisher? Find that new What's Perisher done? Well, what I did with Perisher, uh, I actually split Perisher. You know, just just to get more funds in, I split Perisher into its, its old constituent four resorts. Yeah. So uh, so uh, a, a very good friend of mine who I've taken ski touring for a couple of decades now, and uh, he's uh, he bought Guthiger. And uh, some of the folks bought Perisher, and I think Smiggins and Blue Cow are still uh, still available. Still available. So, uh, okay. Yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, and just before you go, so we'll let you go shortly. But um, what our question we asked to everyone is: What is your favourite ski resort in the world and Australia? What favourite ski resort in the world and Australia? Uh, Look, I, I have a soft spot for Charlotte Pass because I worked there. That's I learned to ski in 86. I went back there in 94. So I still love to try and get up there for a day every season if I can and just uh, you know, a bit of a day trip of thing up there. So I still love love uh, being up there. But, look, you know, I, I haven't skied that much in Victoria. Uh, I haven't skied there for a long time. So uh, so probably Charlotte's, but then, you know, I ski through Bowen Parish a, you know, a lot during the season. Uh, and uh, overseas, look, the vast, whilst I've done some resort skiing overseas, most of my stuff has been backcountry. And uh, I, for 15 years, had a real passion for ski touring, long ski mountaineering journeys in the Indian Himalaya. And uh, so I'll, 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 if can I have the whole of the Indian Himalaya as one large ski resort? I'll take that one. Wow. Well, yeah. You can have it. You have to pay for it, though. <laughs> <laughs> Nepal is definitely somewhere I'd love to go, and the Himalaya is definitely yeah. probably the Indian Himalaya. I think I don't well, know. Well, you, you can. I mean, do, India, as you're probably aware, does have a, a couple of ski resorts, and uh, yeah, uh, Gulmarg yeah. has the highest uh, gondola in the world. Now it goes up to four thousand meters, 
I, I skied there in, in 87 the first time, and then I didn't actually ski there until I was taken there to write some stories about three years ago, just before the pandemic. And it's changed massively now with sort of five-star hotels and this gondola that just wow. shoots up to 4,000 metres. And nobody's skiing there because most of the people who go there are Indians who just want to throw snowballs and be towed around in sleds. So you just oh, wow. this, uh, it's, I'd, I'd recommend going to Gulmar for a bit of a play. Well, Adam West, he runs uh, trips to the Gulmarg and he's one of the guys who runs the uh, avalanche courses down in um, New South Wales. So, yep. yeah, we've done an yep. episode with him. So And, yeah. and, and, and Bill Barker too, at, uh, the head of Ski Patrol at Hotham, mm-hmm. does some stuff over in Kashmir. So, yeah. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. Well, travel safe, Hugh. We'll be definitely watching you. Um, great, great cause. Great worthy cause. Be safe. Get home safe to Wendy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will and, and I'd love you to talk to you both and thanks for the opportunity yeah. no worries thanks for listening to Loving the Snow Life with Emma and Tanil. if you've learned a handy tip or two then happy days to catch all our episodes subscribe on iTunes it's free head over to www.lovingthesnowlife.com.au for more info and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Loving the Snow Life. If you have any suggestions for topics or guests, then email us on our website. Thanks to everyone who leaves a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to share our episodes on your social media.